passage today is from John chapter 4, verses 43 through 52. After the two days he left for Galilee, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem, the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This is the second sign. Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. So a little over four years ago, I found myself pacing back and forth in a labor delivery room. I was awaiting the arrival of our eldest child. Uh, and while Jessica was the picture of calm, cool, and collected, I, I was a little bit fidgety, you might say. Uh, I, I had what you might, like this nervous energy, and every time that Jessica would move, I would look over with this look of anticipation and expectation, uh, and I think after the hundredth time of me doing this, I, it got a, a bit annoying, and so uh, th thus the pacing back and forth, and that was basically the picture of me the whole day as Jess is just like breathing, glowing, beautiful, yes, and, and I'm like, oh dear Lord, what's going to happen? Oh my gosh, okay. And then, uh, like, the mood shifted from nervous Kyle energy uh, to something different. And the midwife came in, and she, she said, I, I think that's a foot. Uh, and translation for a first-time dad was, um, the, the baby is going the wrong way. And so Griffin was breech. And immediately, the tone, it shifted, and... I, I wasn't quite sure what to do because all of a sudden plans had changed. The idea that we would have a natural birth went out the window and soon enough the doctors were literally pulling Griffin out into the world out of my wife's body, which was a surreal thing to watch. They have a little window and you can see the whole thing if you want. And that the waiting had been eclipsed all of a sudden by worry and then the worry in a moment was eclipsed by something like wonder and beauty. And we're sitting there, I'll, I'll often tell Griffin that I was the, the first person who like saw him, although the doctors obviously were. I'll tell him that I, I was the one who named him. And I'll tell him, I'm, I'm the one who held you when you were all gooey and gross. And uh, I was also the first person who Griffin released all of his insides on um, right there. If you want to know what I'm talking about, you can just Google meconium, uh, and you will then find out our... In other words, I was like inextricably bound to him, and I still am, like this deep love and affection welled up in my soul. I didn't know where it came from. I didn't even know I had that ability to love someone and something like this. Uh, but our wonder at this new gift, like out in the wild, 
it, it quickly faded. Um, it was interrupted because due to the nature of Griffin's birth, he still had fluid in his lungs. And so hours old, he then gets wheeled out of our room and down the hallway to the NICU. And I, I, t time is a funny thing because time offers perspective. It gives us some space to reflect on and understand what took place. And still, as I think about that moment, the moment where Griffin is being wheeled down to the NICU, it, it stands like imprinted on my soul as one of the most visceral experiences of fear that I've ever encountered. And if you've ever faced a chronic illness or deep hurt, or you know someone who is in or who has lived through that type of story, then you know their life is qualified by a statement that goes something like this. Like, I know this may seem strange, but I'll do anything. I'll, I'll do anything to get well, or I'll do anything to go there. I'll do anything to see them again. I'll do anything to, like, to live. Those are the words of desperation. And Griffin, just by virtue of coming into the world, he unlocked this thing in me to the point that I was like reduced to a puddle of a man on the hospital grounds. I like remember people walking by and I'm like shuddering. It's one of those oddly warm fall days and I, I don't know what to do with myself. And I'm like looking up at the room and pleading with God to, to save his life. I didn't know what would happen to him. And in the face of uncertainty, I'm like undone. I would do anything. See, desperation is this curious malady. You can't really diagnose desperation. It's not like if you look in the DSM-5 and you're like, okay, I'm going to name this thing that's taking place in my heart. You, you can't find a thing that would diagnose it, but it is recognized as a negative emotion. The psychologist Valeria Sabater, she describes desperation like this. She says, it is a poison that turns off your hopes, motivations, and energy little by little, like a poison. At face value, that's a pretty dire prognosis. But considering our teaching texts today, it actually seems fitting to hold that definition in front of the scene that we just heard read. Because John has just drawn our attention to a certain official a royal official, in fact, a, a man that is literally, he, he's, he's one who is a man of the king. This official from Capernaum, a man that John introduced like this in verse 47. He said, when this man, this official, heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. So even in the brevity of this verse, at least to my mind, the man's desperation is kind of begins to drip off of the page. It's like it's hanging there on the words, and we see it in these. He went to Jesus, and then this word, he begged him. I, there's a word that I think captures the posture of a beggar better than begging itself. It's the word grovel. Have any of you ever groveled? We have two small humans, and so I get to experience groveling. It usually happens, um, your body kind of goes limp, and your arm is like this, and you're pleading your case. You're like, and in some sense, this, this is this man. He is undone. And something, we don't know what, but something broke loose in him when he heard that Jesus had arrived in the Galilee. If you can picture in your mind's eye, 
that there's this region called the Galilee, and there's a little sea up in the north called the Sea of Galilee, and a river goes down south and ends in this place called the Dead Sea. And near there is Jerusalem. Jesus has gone back up to the Galilee, and he's not on the sea because that's where Capernaum is. He's up in the hills in a town called Cana. And this man, he hears that Jesus is there in Cana. And so what he does is he goes some 15 miles up into the hills to Cana. This father, this man, this official, when he hears that Jesus is nearby, he takes off and he is desperate to find and plead with Jesus to heal his son. That's the scene unfolding in front of us. But have you ever... Did you know that you can interact with the Bible? Like you can ask questions of it. You can imagine yourselves in the scene. You can picture like what, what was he thinking? You could be a quote fly on the wall in the scriptures. But have you ever wondered what this man was thinking? As he's going from I'm guessing some sort of palatial spread down by the sea up into the hills? Like what was he thinking? You might draw some of your own desperate prayers to mind. Think, think of those prayers, the ones you've prayed when you're up against what feels like the weight of a stadium on your chest, when you're there and you're up against it. What are those words? You might have an idea, a taste of his desperation when those words come to mind. It's like when the diagnosis came in, like what, what, what welled up in you? Where did fear kind of press on your body? Was it in your gut, in your chest, like in your heart, maybe up in your throat? When they said the relationship was over, where did your mind go? Did it feel like those words, whatever those words may have been, did they kind of steal your breath away? If you will, I, I would just invite you to take a moment and just observe those things. I think we're really good at allowing those things to pass by or for us to bypass them. But what would it look like if we just sat with those thoughts, the things that come up in the face of desperation? Take a moment, like observe those things, maybe even feel them in your body. Like where do you carry them? Do, do you carry them still? Do you hide them away so that maybe even you don't notice them? And what if like this official, you could take those things, like kind of the pangs of desperation, what if you could take those to Jesus? For some of you, this, this might feel strange, but we're gonna tr like try this on. If, if it's helpful, you could um, even close your eyes, but we're gonna imagine what this might be like to, to, to be on the road with this man, except for you are the one carrying your desperation up the hill. And so I, I want you to, to picture yourself. Picture yourself ascending that hill with desperation in hand. I like to envision myself kind of going up the hill and but, but like with my desperation, I'm not just carrying it in my hand, it's like in a, in a sack and I've slung it over my right shoulder. With each step up the hill, I can like feel the weight of all that desperation bouncing on my back. It's kind of going to and from each side. And I know that the weight of the bag, it feels heavier this time And then on the horizon, 
like on the crest of the hill, imagine Jesus seeing you, seeing him. What's the expression on his face? Who's around him? Now imagine him just stopping whatever he's doing and turning towards you. As you come closer, you kind of push through the crowds a little bit. Everyone notices that he's now turned towards you. Imagine him reaching out to receive you, like all of you, to, to take hold of what it is that you're carrying. But there's that moment where he's holding it and you're holding it still. And if you're able, give him permission. Like give him permission to simply see you, seeing him. Give him permission to be with you, with your desperation. So I'd imagine that he's not looking away. I can't imagine that he's shunning you or shaming you. Imagine him taking all the stuff that you've brought to him. And now kind of come back to this moment here in this room. So I'd like to imagine that our prayers, our desperate prayers are some of our best ones. If you're like me, then your desperate prayers, those are the places where you yell and you cuss, you bring all of your anger, you, you cry, or you simply just like groan under the weight of silence. And my guess is that this man had something like what you or I were carrying up that hill. And I don't see Jesus turning from his desperation, and so I'd imagine he doesn't turn from yours. Instead, with this man, Jesus seeks to do something with his desperation. You might even say he seeks to reform his desperation. And what's so curious to me is that this man's not the only one there. As at the beginning of our teaching text, John shared that the Galileans were there. These are the very ones who had seen all that Jesus had done in Jerusalem at the Passover. They're likely the people that John makes note of at the end of chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, we hear John say this in John 2, 23. Now, while he, that's Jesus, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people, including the Galileans, who had come down for the festival, that many people saw the signs Jesus was performing, and they believed in his name. And this is what's so curious, is though the people believe or they entrust Jesus, they entrust themselves, they pisteo in his name, Jesus would not entrust, or Jesus would not pisteo, trust, have faith. He would not give himself over to them. For he knew all people, and he did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each people. These are the people that are there with Jesus. And to my mind, this helps to explain the odd words that we encounter next in our teaching text. In verse 48, Jesus says this, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. So we, we simply don't know 
If the official's arrival has interrupted a larger flow of Jesus' thought directed at the crowds, the ones who had seen and entrusted themselves to Jesus, but that Jesus would not entrust himself to them. So we don't know if the officials come and interrupted this larger flow of thought, but what is clear is as far as this man is concerned, Jesus' words don't apply to him. And it's not because of his status. It's not because he's a royal official's man. He's not, it's not because he's the king's man. It's not even because of his desperation. See, the NIV supplies the, quote, you people, because Jesus' language is plural. Unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will never believe. This man, therefore, stands in stark contrast to those seeking signs instead of the one to whom they point. This man is actually seeking out Jesus himself. To the extent that Jesus' words, they hardly touch down in the scene. It's like you encounter this odd statement in verse 48, and, and unless, unless you people see signs and wonders, it's, and I just imagine um, that the, the royal official is almost interrupting Jesus. Like Jesus' words are still hanging in the air, and he's like, yeah, 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 I, I, okay, that's fine. But sir, come down before my child dies. And I've tried to picture this different ways. I've tried to, like, he's pleading, he's begging. It's, it's, the, it's this almost groveling. So I've tried to picture him on his knees, like, clinging before Jesus. But I've, I've also tried to picture him, like, at Jesus' ear, almost, like, tucked in behind Jesus, safe there in his presence, whispering it to him. And if you've ever had a moment where a child comes up and you're, like, having a conversation... And that child wants your attention, and they're, they're kind of lingering there awkwardly. Um, in some contexts, uh, you, you might even see the child, like, put their hand on you. At that context is, I don't know where that is. That's, like, in a different universe. Because my child comes in, and he's, like, at, not just at the hip. He, like, cuts in between you, and he just, he, like, makes his presence known. I don't know if the man's doing this or if he's whispering quietly in Jesus' ear. Whatever it is. He feels as though he can come to Jesus and make this plea, Sir, come down. And up until this point, it's proximity that explains Jesus' power to heal. It's like physical closeness. It's the laying on of hands. It's, it's stories of people breaking through roofs or reaching through crowds just to touch the hem of his garment. It's proximity. And so it makes sense that this man would plead with Jesus to come down to heal his son. Because in his mind, proximity equates to power. So Jesus has to be in that space. He has to be close. He has to get his hands and his words to kind of wash over this man's son. But what if Jesus desired to release something more potent than a display of power? What if Jesus' presence is itself more powerful than his proximity? And what if the power of his presence isn't bound to a place? So I think tucked into this passage is itself a beautiful interaction, but it's also like a hope-filled reality that we can step into. And this might sound odd, so let me just continue to work through the text. Um, stay in the story. This is verse 50. Go, Jesus replied. So, sir, come down. Go, Jesus replied. Your son will live. And so to the official's plea to come down, Jesus says, go. 
if the expectation of desperation is something like full restoration, and the apparent means of resolving the tension of this man's desperation, as, as far as he's concerned, is to get Jesus next to his son, because remember, proximity equates to power. If that's the formula, then Jesus' word, go, takes all the power out of proximity. And then it threatens how we think Jesus ought to work in the world. If you have been in or grown up around like Pentecostal or charismatic spaces, and I would dare say like um, evangelical spaces, which is the vast majority of us, there is this desire for, and here's the technical term, God's imminence. That's something like God's manifest presence. Like we want God to intervene. We want him to heal. We want him to provide. We want God to do X, Y, or Z. We desire God's eminence. It's really this desire for God to, that the language might even be to change the atmosphere, to respond to our cry. And, and, and to be honest with you, like I'm for that. Like I'm for a heart that's tuned toward God to release whatever burden we're carrying. And I think Jesus is for that as well. But I think that there's more than that. Because have you noticed that when we expect Jesus to move in a particular way, but he doesn't, that frustration quickly follows? And it's at that point that's like there's this fork in the road that we can continue to follow Jesus or we can follow our frustration. See, in our desires for power over our circumstances, Jesus offers humility when we want to take up the sword against our enemy or our perceived enemy, Jesus offers us the other cheek. And so often our wants and even our desperation, they drive us to Jesus, which is a good and beautiful place to bring those things, but seldom, or at least, at least for me, do I want to know what Jesus wants. I have this expectation that Jesus himself can take on all that I'm carrying. And that's true. He, in fact, says, bring, release your anxieties to me. Release your burdens because I care for you. Cast them on me. Um, but Jesus is not simply here to be consumed. And neither are we. But there is this dynamic reality, this interaction, this friendship that God in Christ wants to cultivate in us, where he is something more than a product to be consumed. He wants to know us and be known by us. And our constant desire to have those needs met or those expectations resolved or the desperation to be attended to in the way we want it, that can lead to frustration. So I, I don't know what it is that you carried up that imaginary hill to Jesus. I, I don't know what was dredged up in your soul when you saw Jesus seeing you. I, I don't know the expectations that you bring now today in general or specifically. I, I, I don't know if Jesus feels far off from your troubles. But what I do know is that there is something more potent on offer that it is the power of his presence. Jesus may intervene in our circumstances, and he may not. Go, Jesus replied. 
your son will live. And the man took Jesus at his word and departed. That, that latter part, the man took Jesus at his word and departed, literally is just this in the text. The man believed and went. See, somewhere between go, your son will live, and his departure, belief rose up in this man's heart. So something like faith or trust or hope released him from desperation's demand for proximity. His desperation brought him to Jesus, and his desperation led him to plead with Jesus to come down. But when Jesus said, go, your son will live, something broke loose desperation's demands for Jesus to act in the way he wanted. John Wimber, who is a leader in this kind of charismatic renewal of a past generation, he would often say that you can spell faith, R-I-S-K. And I, I, I quite like that. It fits my personality, extroverted in nature. But I, sometimes I think the risk, it's not interpersonal. The risk is not inter, like experiential. The risk is to bring our actual desperation to Jesus. The risk is to bring our anger and our frustration and all of that and to choose to release it. Because we, we know how to hold our anger, but seldom do we get opportunities to release our anger, to relent. In other words, trust in Jesus, it is this strange mix of confidence. Confidence that we can bring the whole part of who we are, the good and the bad and the ugly and the beautiful. We can bring all of ourselves to Jesus. There's confidence there, but there's also uncertainty because we don't know the outcome. It's a strange mix of confidence and uncertainty. And with that in hand, the man believed and went. And while he was still on his way, his servants are going to meet him. They're going to tell him that his son is well. He's going to realize that when Jesus said, go, your son will live, that that was the exact hour. And then something's going to happen. He and his whole household will believe. It's this second trust that rises up in this man's heart. And I don't think that makes the first trust illegitimate. It just means that there was another moment of trust. So I don't, I don't know if it's the simple fact that this man now carried God's word, having come to him in Jesus, the Messiah, that allowed him to move toward trust and go. Or maybe there was some other like metaphysical phenomenon that we just have to, I don't know, sit in the mystery of or something like that. But what strikes me about this scene is that faith is moving between trust and trust. It's like faith grows between these things, but there's, because there's trust, there's obedience, and there's some more trust on the other side. What's so curious to me is that there's this notion that we ought not doubt that we ought not wrestle, that, that our cries, in fact, stand as an obstacle to obedience. And I, 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 if you've been around Gateway for any amount of time, um, then my hope is, is that you would know that your, your questions are welcome. Like, in fact, if you are in a season where you feel like God is more absent than present, may I just say to you, that is beautiful. Like you have something to bring to this church, which is the gift of God's absence, which means our faith can increase to hold you in your desperation. And so often that, that type of 
absence or perhaps there's chronic illness or there's just increased frustration or there's, there's I don't know, life happening. Like we have, we have the oddest things that we say to one another. Like we dismantle one another's faith and, and we say weird, th- like Christians say weird things. Not just like, oh, you might not have enough faith, but like, I wonder if you're cursed. Like we say weird, jacked up stuff to one another. We hide daggers in our words when we think they're blessing. We simply don't know what to do or make of our desperation. But fortunately, that is a beautiful place to live. And actually, the scriptures bear witness of this type of life. You have the psalmist in Psalm 42 who cries out with these words, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? I love how the writer, Strawn Coleman, kind of captures the tension of a desperate heart. And reflecting on this psalm, he says this. He says, The writer of this psalm knew all about grief. The opening lines tell the story of a desert-bound sojourner desperate for spiritual oasis. He longs for heavenly hydration like his life depends on it, but the only water he gets are the salted tears of continual despair. But just as we become convinced that the psalmist is giving up, he robs hopelessness of its victory by speaking back to his own soul. Go back to Psalm 42 real quick. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Who is the psalmist speaking to? Well, the the psalmist is speaking to the psalmist's soul. And in the biblical imagination, you don't simply possess a soul, this ethereal part of you, that when you die, you're going to like become worm food and then your soul is going to go up into the heavens. No, you are a soul. You are a living soul. And therefore, the psalmist in that condition says to his soul, hope in God. Why? For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So we don't know where this official, this father, this man, we don't know where, his des- like where he carried his desperation before. Or probably more accurately, we have no idea where his desperation compelled him to go. We don't know if his desperation drew him into a deep despair that he like, had no idea he could even get out of, what we might call depression. We don't know if his desperation drove him to a drink or to some other thing to numb himself. But somehow when Jesus is on the horizon, it breaks the bonds of desperation and gives vent for those things. Like he took his desperation to Jesus. And when he comes to Jesus looking for power, Jesus offers more. And I love how Coleman says this, like faith actually makes space for us to rob hopelessness of its victory. I don't know if some of you need to like rob hopelessness of its victory today. But you're like, yeah, that sounds nice, but you, there's no way that's going to happen that's fine. Just preach to your soul. In the midst of that, it's not that the psalmist doesn't wait until the warm fuzzies are there to preach to their soul. No, in the midst of it, they say hope in God. Faith makes space. Belief makes space. Trust makes space for us to rob hopelessness of its victory. That doesn't mean that the pangs of despair and hopelessness don't linger 
doesn't mean that those things no longer hurt. They surely do, but like the psalmist, we're not subject to every helpless or hopeless thought. We can commend ourselves into God's loving hands. Like we can imagine ourselves ascending the hill, meeting Jesus, like seeing Jesus seeing us, receiving us, receiving our desperation. And that there he can respond with something more than just power, but he can give us the gift of himself, his very presence. See, it's curious, at the end of John's gospel, we encounter these words. They come to a man that we affectionately call Doubting Thomas, which I think Thomas is just more of a realist than anything else. But uh, we, we receive these words from Jesus. He says, because, this is, this is to Thomas, but kind of all of us in 2023, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I think for many of us, we want to work things down until we have the fullest understanding of them. Like we refuse trust until we have understanding. But could I, could I perhaps say that we actually in that place don't want understanding? We're fighting for overstanding. Understanding assumes some measure of humility where we're willing to come underneath something. But if we will not trust unless we have all of the information, unless it's all clear, that's about control. That's standing over something. The invitation to Jesus, we may never get understanding. And Jesus for sure challenges the overstanding, the place, the remedy, the release in all of that is called faith. This odd mystery and yet place of confidence. See, if desperation compels uncommon action, ascending the hill, how much more love? Coleman, again, to kind of draw it all together and bring us to conclusion, says this. It's okay to be downcast. There's nothing unspiritual about that. It's how we allow ourselves to sit with God in that moment that will either give life or death to our difficulty. So don't hide your grief from God. Don't forget the good things he has been and done for you already, and don't allow your soul to dictate to you the condition of your hope. Our hope can indeed come from the Lord. So perhaps today, um, what you needed to get going was me preaching to your soul. But I can't sustain that. No preacher can. By the way, there are like the best preachers out there. You can listen to them at any time, but they can never say to you what you need, what you know your soul needs. They, can't, they don't know the intimacy of your heart. They don't know your troubles. They don't know your vexation. Only you and then the spirit who is with you, the personal presence of God. And so perhaps... This is just a reminder to preach to your soul. In the midst of being downcast, it says hope in God. But perhaps that hope will not come for a while. And that's okay. And so I want to invite us into this awkward space of the now and not yet a hope that's present but perhaps not felt. Um, see, this, this space that we get to gather in, um, it's a co-working space. It's not acoustically friendly. Uh, that is, there's small humans who are experiencing like the joy of the Lord as their strength over yonder. 
And uh, then we're here trying to like attend to God in the midst of whatever might be welling up. And my guess is if I was in your seat, this is where I try and imagine myself. If, if I was sitting where you are, hearing these things, my guess is what I would feel is I would be aware of the stuff. I would be aware of my desperation, but I would also be aware that there are a bunch of people around me. And I'd be like, Kyle, you're fooling yourself if you think I'm going to allow any external emotions to come. My therapist told me this week, tears are just like your eyes getting wet. You don't have to send them away. And then I laughed, but then I was like, oh, dear Lord. <laughs> and so I, what I want to do is um, perhaps just hold some silence with you all. I have a timer going here. We're just going to go for 60 seconds. That's it. And so I'll pray, I'll say amen, and then 60 seconds will start. Jesus, would you help us to see you seeing us? We've come up the hill with all of our desperation. It's in hand, it's over our shoulders, it's weighing us down. The sounds of the world continue, but we, we want to bring it to you. So imagine yourself seeing Jesus, seeing you. Imagine his face toward you, not against you. So come, Jesus, meet us in this space, we pray. Amen. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you don't shun us or shame us. We thank you that you are for us and not against us. We thank you, Jesus, that you offer us the words of promise that I'll never leave you or forsake you. You're with us now to the very end of the age.